You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 222. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Just me today, a little solo show. And uh, we've got some interesting stuff lined up today. We've got uh, a little bit of social commentary um, lined up today. We're going to talk about Jonathan Haidt's article in The Atlantic, um, why things are really stupid, basically. Do you ever wake up, do you ever walk around your town and be like, everything is so dumb right now, especially post-COVID? Well, uh, <laughs> we're going to maybe um, maybe break apart why that is, according to social scientist uh, Jonathan Haidt, and um, look, uh, maybe look at some tweets, I don't know, talk about current events, and uh, and uh, maybe get into deeper stuff than that. Uh, we'll see how much time we have. Uh, first of all, what's going on today? It's uh, April, what is it today? April 18th. Uh, it's nice and spring today is, uh, is very good. It's, it's nice and cool out outside, but it's not, I'm not freezing. I feel like this is, um, this is what I was sold when I was sold spring, but it's, uh, it's, it's very few and far between when you actually get those spring days uh, in spring. Uh, I'm very excited tonight about the uh, Better Call Saul uh, series. No, the season opening of the series premiere, or the series, the the final season of the series. So um, we're finally starting that up again, uh, and uh, I have no idea what's going to happen. But I've just been binging through season five, and season five is fantastic. And I forgot that that was actually going on in March 2020 when that was coming out. Um, so very interesting. It sort of takes, takes me back <laughs> to, to those days. Um, and I've been working on largely, uh, uh, the new map.ai project, which I'll talk about in future episodes. Um, of course my bias correction paper on how to correct bias in machine learning using a Bayesian framework, uh, that's been up. I wrote a blog post about it. Um, and, uh, I'm preparing an email list. I'm going to kind of send it around, see what people think. Um, so, um, Hey, I might get a chance to reach out to people who I haven't spoken to in a while, which is, which is kind of nice. Um, and finally on, on, on that front, uh, no, what's finally, no. Okay. I worked on that. Um, yeah, right. Passover, Passover the last couple of days, went home to Connecticut, just got back last night. So kind of tired again from those three hour drives back and forth. But this time it was a six hour drive down to Connecticut because it was Friday at start of weekend. There's Easter, a lot of traffic. So, um, man, that was a rough drive, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, I'm back now. Very good. I, uh, I led a quick Seder. Uh, I got very good reviews from it from, from people who are usually very impatient. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, uh, proud of that. Maybe, uh, maybe the podcasting skills kind of, kind of paid off there, um, it's always good if you have a Seder when people are podcasters and actors and things like that. Uh, so it makes it, uh, makes it a little more interesting. Um, but all right, let's get in to, oh, oh and by the way, yes, happy, uh, a lot of people are celebrating holidays this weekend. People, I, I, you know, we have listeners celebrating Passover, we have listeners celebrating Easter, we have listeners celebrating Ramadan. So yes, happy, uh, happy holidays for, for all of those, uh, all of those celebrating holidays this weekend. Uh, this is a big, big weekend for that. All right. So today we're going to talk about Jonathan Haidt in the Atlantic. Uh, this was recent. Uh, uh, this was a, a recent article that he published. It's a very long article, so I can't get into every detail. But the title is it's a wonderful title. You can't not read it when you hear the the title, which is "Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid." And I know that I've been walking around. I've been, you know, you look at signs. It's 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 COVID signs, but not just COVID signs. It's you know, it's uh, <laughs> warning labels. It's uh, it's uh, it's when you go on Twitter. It's it's things that the politicians say. Um, even local politicians in New York, you wouldn't believe. Um, and so it's kind of like um, it might not be uniquely stupid. Some of it. Some of it's just generally stupid. You know, they've always been stupid, but. Um, you have to, but okay. That why have the ten last ten years of American life been uniquely stupid? That's an interesting question. I wanted answered, uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read the whole thing and uh, and share it with you. So, who's Jonathan Haidt? Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at the Stern School of Business at NYU. Um, I I didn't meet him, but I I went to Stern, so that that's cool. Uh, he does have a certain point of view, I think, from the political side. Definitely like a mainstream. 
liberal, uh, kind of moderate left liberal, or, or maybe kind of like an older school Democrat, not very old school, but like <laughs> recent old school before Democrats went off the deep end. Uh, so he, he probably would object to me saying this and calling out bias. But I would say that, you know, even though I don't agree with some of his examples, I think that he does a particularly good job at making the content of his writing approachable, and it's not propaganda. You know, you could really tell he's trying to understand what's going on and um, trying to lay out the arguments and examples as clearly as possible, and obviously as deep academic research to that effect. So this is not going to be me, you know, reading a, a, a stupid article uh, which is, again, why have the last year been so stupid? Sometimes I read stupid articles. You learn the New York Times and I complain about it. This is not what I'm doing today. Today I'm, I'm reading a smart article and I'm going to add additional commentary, my thoughts, my questions for the purpose of, um, you know, leading to a good discussion. So I hope you say, well, um, do I agree with uh, Professor Haight in this, in this instance? Do I disagree? Do I think there should be uh, more commentary here? And then I'm going to open it up to you guys. What do you think? You know, uh, uh, drop me a line at uh, on, on our locals, maximum.locals.com. So the article opens up and he talks about, you know, he, he brings up kind of a, a biblical reference to the Tower of Babel. And uh, at the end of the story in the Tower of Babel, uh, you know, society falls apart. Um, but specifically, it's because people can no longer understand each other. They have different languages. And he believes this has happened in America politically with Red America and Blue America. And he asks, how did this happen? And this, the rest of the article is not just about our partisan divide, or, or at least not about binary partisan divides. Um, but, um, but that's an interesting opening. So there's a lot of allusions to this this story about how everyone was speaking one language, and then all of a sudden, there was a great... Um, a great uh, separation, a great divisioning. Divisioning is not a word, but you know. Um, so um, d- does that seem to be happening today? And so he goes back to the original internet, um, the idea of the original internet from the 90s through the 2000s, amazing communication breakthrough. Um, and we had a ton of optimism about it. People thought it would bring about world peace, um, and understanding, you know, people from different cultures would no longer, um, you know, would no longer distrust or despise each other as much. It might bring people in the country together. You have better uh, dialogue. You know, it's very important in democracy to have uh, a very important dialogue with your fe- fellow citizens. And now we have message boards. You could talk to people all across the country. And so uh, that should strengthen our dialogue that should strengthen the democratic process, that should strengthen liberty and freedom. That was the idea. It was supposed to be a boon to democracy, the original internet. And he's saying, wow, that didn't really happen the way, uh, the way certain people uh, hoped. And he pointed to the high point of techno-democratic optimism, which was in the year 2011. Now, 2011 was an interesting year, both for me and for the world. I always have to make it about me, don't I? Well, anyway... 2011, uh, first of all, using the, uh, uh, which was central to the article, the, the, the Tower of Babel example, he said that was the year that Google Translate was available. And it's kind of amazing to think that was 12 years ago. And I don't, I don't know if it's gotten much better. Because when it came out 11 years ago, it was like, wow, this is a huge breakthrough. I can use Google Translate on my phone. I remember the first time I was traveling around, maybe, I don't know if it was 2013 or if it was 2014, where you know, I was in, a, in, a, in Central America in a Spanish-speaking country. And you know, I was trying to tell the, the cab driver where I was going, and I'd just talk into the phone. The phone would talk back in Spanish, and he'd understand me. And it was like, it was, it was the most amazing thing. Um, and I'd have to download it beforehand. There were other apps I could download. Uh, and, um, and so that's sort of the, the, the reverse Tower of Babel. It's everyone speaking the same language. And so, you know, uh, the, the political trends also looked um, like they were kind of maybe positive, maybe driven by um, maybe maybe driven by uh, some of this newfound uh, connection that everyone had. Because remember, uh, 2011, 2010 was kind of the year that um, that mobile finally came together. And so we were all kind of on the internet typing. And now all of a sudden, we were always on. And so that makes a big difference. And so he mentions Arab Spring 
happened in 2011. Um, Occupy Wall Street happened in 2011. He did not mention uh, the Tea Party, uh, an anti-tax movement in the United States, but that was also in 2010 uh, and 2011. And um, I, I... Honestly, I think that might be a little bit of bias on his part. I, I think that probably belongs in there. Um, and, um, you know, 2011 is, uh, um, what else was I going to say? I think that it's amazing how sometimes we think of 2008 and some people try to portray 2008 as some kind of dark turning point with, uh, you know, the the Great Recession and all of that. Uh, And a lot of people lost big in 2008. A lot of people have bad years in 2008. Friends of mine had bad years, not just financial years, but it kind of cascades into all sorts of different problems. Um, But, you know, it's maybe the economy didn't come roaring back in 2011. The economy wasn't... um, the, the economy wasn't exactly booming in 2011, but for tech, it was. For tech, it was a very optimistic time in 2011. Uh, for, specifically for tech in New York City, I started working at Foursquare in 2011. That was blossoming um, at the time because now all of a sudden you can have a map where you can do real-time updates while you're on site and you could you know, update your friends where you are. And it's, it's, Foursquare would not have been possible in 2009. I mean, it came out in 2009, but you know, it it uh, it that 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 was really the earliest that it could have come out. And even then, like you know, <laughs> most of the people who were on Foursquare by 2012 uh, couldn't have been on in 2009. So it kind of rode that wave uh, sort of sort of perfectly. Um, and so, and I'm going to bring up you know the 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 fourth turning um, ideas. Uh, occasionally in this episode, even though uh, it doesn't come into the article. But I think 2011, you could sort of interpret as the last gasp of the third turning, kind of the last wave of this innovation. Like, hey, we're going to take all the inventions created in the last several decades and put it together and make a lot of money and uh, bring it to the masses. And so that last wave included Foursquare. It also included things like Uber and Airbnb, very big early in the deck. I mean, still big now, but Actually, it's much less impressive now, and it's. I feel like those services also peaked. They're not as good as they used to be because, you know, government and regulation have clamped down on them. Back then, it was just like, do whatever you want. Business is business, and all of a sudden, you had cars taking you around when you couldn't before, and so, um, so it just felt like that we were living in this amazing new world. And I can speak to this. This is not from the article. This is just from me. I just thought of three examples, several examples, of you know, what the tech world was like in 2011. First, there was this book um, by Clay Shirky, who was a really interesting thinker also at NYU. And so the one I'm thinking of is Here Comes Everybody, The Power of Organizing Without Organizations. That came out in 2009. Um, Of course, a lot of these things came out in 2009, but they're really about the whole era. Um, And so that was just about, that took the idea of Wikipedia from the uh, 2000s and said, no, we're going to, Take the Wikipedia model, and um, uh, which all of a sudden made so much information available that it wasn't, and just apply it to everything, and have much larger groups of people um, build uh, build data sets and um, and build intelligence. And I think that this is a great idea. I think this is an idea that people come back to, and also like, um, and and not just that 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 that, that whole. Wikipedia data set thing is kind of my lens, but I think the, the, the bigger lens in the book is, is content creators, what we now call content creators, you know, people creating all sorts of, of digital goods online. And some of it's junk, most of it's junk, but some of it's really good. Um, you know, when I spoke to Henry Abramson back in episode, oh, let me make sure I get that episode uh, correct. Let me try to uh, get the, uh, the, back in episode 82, um, he cited, uh, he cited Clay Shirky as, um, one of the, um, in, inspirations and in, in his, and Clay Shirky's work is one of the inspirations for putting, uh, free academic lectures online and many universities did it as well. And so that's, um, you know, that, 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 and, and certainly like, you know, that's the reason why I do this podcast and why I want to put out, uh, free educational materials online. And so, you know, that that is a huge reason to be optimistic. 
2011. And it's still true. It's all still true. None of, none of it was taken away from us. Uh, also in 2009, I read uh, Twitterville by Shell Israel. That was part of, um, you know, I was, I was uh, in grad school at NYU at the time. And, you know, when you talk about the 2009 description of what Twitter is, uh, let me just read from uh, the, the Amazon page from this book from, from 2009 uh, about Twitter. Remember, people don't know what Twitter is at the time, so this is, this is how it's described. Unlike other hot social media spaces, Twitterville is dominated by professionals, not students. That's a, probably a dig at Facebook. And despite its size, it still feels like a small town. Twitter allows people to interact much the way they do face-to-face, honestly and authentically. One minute you're complaining about the wealthier with, uh, not the wealthier. Oh my God. I skipped over to the, to, to, <laughs> to modern times. One minute you're complaining about the weather with local friends. And next you're talking shop with a colleague, uh, based halfway around the world. I still do that on Twitter sometimes. No matter where you're from or what you do for a living, you will find conversations on Twitter that are valuable. Despite the millions of people joining the site, you'll quickly find the ones who can make a difference to you. Social media writer Shell Israel shares revealing stories of Twitterville residents from CEOs to the student who became the first to report the devastation of the Sheswan earthquake from uh, visionaries trying to raise money for a cause to citizen journalists who outshine traditional media companies. That is not the description of Twitter that uh, you would hear today. So it's, a, it's just amazing how we've come, not full circle, but, but half circle. Um, and then, of course, I also want to mention Jeff Tucker, who I interviewed uh, in um, episode 75, uh, which is for the, from the book, uh, The Market Loves You. Uh, and he wrote a lot of, he mentioned that some of his stuff in the early 2010s was too optimistic. It was techno-optimism. And I think the one he was talking about was this book, Jetson's World, which I really enjoyed that book. Uh, the tagline from there is, we are surrounded by miracles created in the private sector, particularly in the digital universe, and yet we don't appreciate them enough. I actually agree with that. Um, that's, that is still true, um, of course. Um, but, you know, a lot of the... Uh, those final innovations that were coming out in the early 2010s, things all of a sudden turned dark with some of them, and they haven't been getting better consistently. And so there's all this, you know, it, it, it's um, it that makes it difficult to synthesize what has happened, to both appreciate it and to criticize it. So I I'm, I now will return to this article from Jonathan Haidt to to try to try to break it down what under what's. Uh, uh, what's going on here. So he, he said, all right, everybody's online. Everybody's on Twitter. Everyone's on Facebook. Everyone's LinkedIn counts, Instagram counts, Foursquare counts. Uh, but it eventually becomes about people start interacting normally and they love those interactions, but slowly and sh- but slow, slowly but surely people start focusing on putting on performances and impressing people. And later, uh, and, and research shows uh, from from the article that posts that trigger emotions, especially anger at outgroups, are the most likely to be shared. And a lot of these social networks, particularly Twitter with retweets and, and Facebook and all that, they optimized for the uh, probability that a post would be shared. And so that might be a lesson for machine learning engineers in here for future project, projects and future products that you might want to build um, is that it matters what you are um, what you are optimizing for. Now, in this case, I don't know if it was the machine learning engineers making that decision. It was probably someone else uh, uh, high up in the company. But, um, you know, uh, you've got to think about those things when you build those things. If, if you're optimizing for shares, um, well, that might look good um, at first. It might, you know, if, if, if you're not, opt- if people aren't optimizing for shares themselves, and so they're interacting like they would in the real world, and then you look at the ones that get more shares, you might say, um, oh, okay, those things look like uh, they're better posts, so I'm going to optimize for it. But then there's a feedback loop, and what happens is you optimize for shares, and then people try to game the system, so they try to write things that get more shares, and then all of a sudden, they're writing all this emotional, angry stuff. And so was this phase of the internet inevitable? Probably. But it doesn't have to be for 
each individual engineer. You don't have to bid or each individual product. You don't have to build something like this. You could try to design it better to next time the, over the next, when we have the next phase of products uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen. Uh, the article then brings up the political philosophy of James Madison. And I know a lot of the other American founding fathers also share the same political philosophy. They wanted to create a democratic form of government. Yes, I know their form of government wasn't as, as uh, democratic by today's standards, but by, by the standards of the time, very democratic. Lots of people voting and making decisions. Uh, that's a democracy is going to have a lot of the problems of, of a democracy. And it's not like democracy hadn't been tried before, um, tried previous to the uh, to the United States. There had been democracies, and many of them had been uh, very unstable. And so their job was to try to create a democracy that actually worked, or a democratic process that works. And so according to James Madison, democracy works when you can slow down and cool the passions of the people um, so that you know, um, things are done a little bit more carefully. And it's not like everyone, any, it's not like people can just vote to like put someone to death, for example. So uh, he also wrote that people are prone to factionalization. And he wrote then in a Federalist paper, my interpretation of it was that people want to create factions even when there's no big issue that exists. And it wasn't like in James's Madison's time, there were no big issues that existed. But the idea is that people still want to form factions even over, over very little, over like who's in charge, over some minor point. And that's, that's, um, that's true a lot. So uh, the article asked questions, are, is social media making us lose trust? in institutions? And is this going to be a problem for our form of government or for a democratic form of government? So that's when I start getting nervous. And I start thinking, okay, are they going to ask for censorship? And then I'm also thinking at that point, okay, um, maybe it's not just the social media uh, and uh, people uh, posting all this stuff that's making us lose trust in the institutions. Maybe the institutions actually are bad and people are starting to notice. Uh, so that's, uh, that should be kept in mind too. Um, but I'm going to read uh, a full quote from the article, which is quoting, oh, we're a little bit in, into some inception right here, um, which is uh, quoting a CIA analyst uh, on this specific topic. The former CIA analyst, Martin Gurry, predicted these fracturing effects in his 2014 book, The Revolt of the Public. Gurry's analysis focused on the authority-subverting effects of information's exponential growth, beginning with the internet in the 1990s. Writing nearly a decade ago, Gurry could already see the power of social media as a universal solvent, breaking down bonds and weakening institutions everywhere it reached. He noticed that distributed networks can protest and overthrow, but never govern. He described the nihilism of the many protest movements of 2011 that organized mostly online and that, like Occupy Wall Street, demanded the destruction of existing institutions without offering an alternative vision of the future or an organization that could bring it about. Gurry is no fan of elites or of centralized authority, but he notes a constructive feature of all the pre-digital era, a single mass audience, all consuming the same content as if they're all looking into the same gigantic mirror at the reflection of their own society. In a comment to Vox that recalls the first post-Bible diaspora, he says, the digital revolution has shattered that mirror, and now the public inhabits these broken pieces of glass, so the public isn't one thing. It's highly fragmented, and it's basically mutually hostile. It's mostly people yelling at each other and living in bubbles of one sort or another. So I feel like in this instance, maybe it makes sense that someone in the CIA would look at this and say, this is all doom. This is all downside. Um, and okay, if what he's describing is correct, and I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of these trends are correct, there, there are significant downsides, but do we, does that mean we have to live in the world where there is kind of one institution that controls the narrative. And honestly, it kind of feels like we live in a world right now where one institution controls the narrative anyway, um, as governments and um, educational authorities and entertainment authorities have kind of all colluded to make sure that uh, we're, we're getting together on the same message. Um, and um, no, it, it's not great. And I, 
I kind of wonder if this whole, um, this, this, I come back to that quote before, that distributed network can protest and overthrow but never govern. Maybe that's not true. Maybe you can have a distributed network that can govern. That Now all of a sudden, that's sounding like Bitcoin or crypto or Web3 or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, and also maybe the original United States, you know, the, the idea of, of federalism and checks and balances and, and decentralization among the states, uh, that, that can govern. And so I, I, I think that what's going to happen is that some institutions are going to lose their power or fall away. There's going to be, unfortunately, a very, very, um, uh, uh, very, very disruptive time in world history. And I don't know how bad it's going to get. It might not be the worst time in world history to live through, honestly. It might be okay. But it's going to be very disruptive, could be very painful, where these institutions are falling apart and there seems to be nothing to replace it. But I think those periods always settle down. It always settles down to something that replaces it. And I think that it would have to be institutions that work well with these distributed networks. Um, and again, I don't, I don't think that's impossible, um, like he says. So um, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the, the social commentary and the institutional commentary is probably largely true. I just interpret it a little differently. And also, I think the way that they're kind of, um, the, the, the way that they're kind of uh, uh, presenting it here, it almost sounds like, okay, all of these networks now have to be censored heavily. Uh, otherwise, society is going to fall apart. Very dangerous way of thinking from my point of view. All right. A, a few other points from the article. Another one is that a small number of like jerks and assholes control the discussion you know, even among my friends, I've noticed people post crazy stuff. Sometimes I do, I'll admit it, but not as much as some of my friends. Um, and I remember some of the craziest posts I've seen on Bitcoin, people encouraging violence, people encouraging riots, all that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, people starting to say, you know, hey, unfollow me if X or, you know, don't, I don't want to work with so-and-so and just uh, call out culture, uh, you know, and, and so to quote from the article, people who try to silence or intimidate their critics make themselves stupider, almost as if they're shooting darts into their own brain. And that's what happens. Uh, so you have a small number of people silencing, intimidating, and making critics go away. And then they're making themselves dumber by not understanding alternate points of view. And so this is where I totally agree with the article, and this is where it gets spot on. He says this happens to universities. It's fueled by cancer culture, and then it's fueled by self-censorship. You know, people who uh, just don't want to do um, what they, uh, what you know, people just don't want to say things because they don't want to get in trouble. I understand it. I've had to keep my mouth shut at work a lot of, of the time. Fortunately, now I have some some personal stuff that like I have this podcast where I could say whatever I want. I have, uh, I have the, the new map project where I could build whatever I want, but that not everyone gets to do that. I mean, I didn't get to do that for many years. Uh, I had to work very hard to get, get that set up. So, um, yeah, and not everyone can do it. So it's, so it, it, it is a big problem. Um, he also calls out the far left progressive activists who are using this against the old liberals. Um, basically, you know, universities, there aren't, you know, there's the left and there's the far left. And so the far left of the progressive activists, they're silencing the old liberals, they're shouting them down. Um, and uh, they are refusing to let people speak, even people who deviate from their point of view, five, 10%. You know, my addition to this, and I suspect this is true, a lot of the boomers, particularly the boomers who are in the university system, because this, th th these were the ideas going through the university, not the boomers who were like, you know, uh, out there in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the private sector. But they kind of grew up when they were young with this idea, uh, this, you know, with all the protests and stuff. And young people have all the right ideas. I need to wash the ideas of the old generation away, you know, the times they are changing by Bob Dylan and all that. And now these people are the old people. And they don't, they don't like that. They don't want to be seen as the old people impeding process, uh, uh, progress. So they kind of refuse their role that they should be playing in society, which is to call out the BS from the younger generation. But they can't do it. It's always like, oh, they're so brave and innovative. And, you know, the young people are always right. You, 
I'm sorry, the young people are not always right. And sometimes you need to have an older generation that sets them straight. But I feel like not the boomer generation as a whole, but the university, the academic boomer generation refuses to take on that role. They're just like ideologically opposed to it or they're their like their their personalities and their self identity is opposed to it, so uh, it won't ha- it, w- it won't happen. So they were silent in 2020 when all the crazy stuff was going on, all the violence. They were st- they were silent in 2014, uh, or encouraging in 2014. I remember at Yale when you know that that professor was getting shouted out by um, by students in the courtyard because of Halloween costumes that didn't even exist. It was theoretical Halloween costumes and. Um, yeah, no, nobody actually calls it out. People are like, oh, they have their own life. They have their own truth. They have their own reasons. And we can't criticize. We can't judge. Okay, maybe not be totally judgmental, but at some point you have to say, that's not acceptable. We could try to understand you, but but there are certain things that are not uh, acceptable. So um, uh, Professor Haight uh, does not have very good news for us at first. He believes things are going to get worse. Uh, he talks about GPT-3, well, which I've talked about before on the show. Uh, GPT-3, um, uh, the, the language model, sorry. Uh, the, um, what was it? I was looking for the episode on that. Ah, can't find it. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the language model that's very sophisticated that can come up with plausible-sounding English. So with GPT-3 coming, G, becoming GPT-4, uh, you know, they're just making it more and more sophisticated. Uh, they're building more and more. You can now build misinformation factories that are believable and not reliant on humans. So a lot of the so-called bots and stuff on Twitter were either obvious bots or they were humans who, you know, it's expensive to get human labor. You can't just type that stuff all day, copy and paste, or maybe it's bots that copy and paste uh human, uh, you know, one human writes one thing, and then you have bots that change it a little bit and post on several different accounts. But then the problem with that is that's easy to catch spam-wise. And so those things are going to be, um, those things are going to be spread more and more, uh, unfortunately. Um, now, before we get into his solution, I mean, one solution I have is, man, this whole, uh, everyone gets to post for free, and there's no, um, there's no cost to polluting the system. That might be a problem. So uh, maybe, uh, again, going back to going back 20, 30 years on the internet, maybe, uh, well, I, I don't think we should throw out the, uh, the, the model of, um, of advertising-based content entirely, but I feel like if you're going to post on, on Twitter or some kind of... Uh, some kind of social network, maybe there should be some cost to that if, if, if there's a possibility that you're polluting the system. And then maybe, you know, maybe you'll still have people who are, who are jerks and pay the cost, but you're not going to create huge factories of people and bots who are putting out, you know, uh, uh, bad information and, and harmful posts because it's cost a lot of money and it's just not worth it. And so just even a small cost would make that work. And that's why I think some of these decentralized blockchain-based networks where there has to be a small cost, like, you know, a few pennies for posting something, will, uh, you know, will will make uh, people uh, uh, think think twice. Um, I noticed on Twitter, by the way, it's a really terrible thing about Twitter, is that I follow certain people, but then they'll post suggestions on my feed. And it's always, uh, it's always very annoying tweets that they suggest to me. And it's, it's political propaganda often, um, and it's, it's stuff that, that might be upsetting and it's just like, why, why are they doing this? Um, I think for all the reasons that, uh, that, um, that, that, that we posted before, but this is Twitter's algorithm doing it to me, not somebody, you know, it's, it's somebody making, you know, exploiting their algorithm. So, I mean, Twitter is mismanaged. We know that, uh, let's, not <laughs> uh, so maybe Elon could fix this, but, uh, we'll see what happens. So anyway, coming back to, uh, Jonathan hates solutions. He had three solutions uh, to this problem. Um, again, which I think somewhat right, but also he's somewhat looking in the wrong direction. The first is he suggests that we harden democratic institutions. What he means by that, you know, is that um, he wants to change the voting system so that we don't have such polarized uh, uh, and redistricting systems that we don't have such polarized elections. But he, he uses examples of non-polarizing people 
um, of like Lisa Murkowski, uh, or, um, you know, the, you know, the fact that like Merrick Garland didn't get on the Supreme court, but, um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett did, of course, no word about Kavanaugh about how, how that's unfair. Um, uh, but, um, you know, he, he cites, um, some of these Republicans who are often supporting Democrats he cites Lisa Murkowski. I'm sure he would also cite Liz Cheney and people like that. Uh, I, you know, I don't like that. I wouldn't like our new moderate overlords uh, if that was the case. But, but I actually do agree on the bigger issue because we've talked again. We've talked about ranked choice voting and some of its promise and pitfalls on the show before. I think if implemented correctly, it might be a way to get to a less polarized electoral system where there's more uh, compromise. And I think maybe we'll we can uh, end up with. Um, better compromising moderates than I, I don't think it will only elect pro-establishment, pro-government moderate types. Uh, I, I think we can also, you know, find a way to, uh, you know, elect, um, uh, you know, uh, elect people who are, who are different than that, who are better than that. I, I don't think that ranked choice voting necessarily has to lead to the establishment outcome, but it might lead to someone who is, um, perhaps uh, going against the establishment in a more even-handed way and not trying to um, virtue signal or throw out the red meat for one side or another. I think that would be a good thing. The second thing he's talking about is reform social media. Now, of course, when I hear that, uh, the question is going to be, well, how are you going to reform it? Are you going to reform it from the inside or the outside? Are you going to use government? Um, so it's going to be by laws or by entrepreneurs? If it's by laws, I would say, you know, they're not going to do it right. Um, and also, Who's more likely to reform Twitter now, Elon Musk or the Congress? Uh, Musk is, is I think, a bit closer at this point. So he says that we need to uh, know your customer, KYC for social media, um, you know, and also to prevent uh, power law info and share. So in other words, prevent, you know, these uh, certain posts from going viral. It's not that you can't post things, but it's um, it, it's kind of an across-the-board just um, sort of smooth out that curve where it's not like, oh, a small number of posts get all of the attention and most posts get no attention, kind of flatten that power law a little bit. I don't, I don't know if that works. I, I, uh, first of all, that, that's giving up some privacy for sure with KYC. Um, and it's just surprising that he doesn't mention any of the uh, like crypto or blockchain alternatives here where you know, you don't, you, you, you can, and he says, you could post anonymously. We're just going to, uh, we're, we're just going to know who you are. <laughs> the, the, the service will know who you are. So, uh, so, uh, you know, just in, just in case something happens, but, ah, that's, a, that's of course, um, uh, that's, I don't trust that. <laughs> let me, let me put it that way. But I think that, um, if under a blockchain system, we know who you are by your, private key. Um, now, we might not know what country you're in. We might not know if you're a bot or if you're a human. Um, but if you have some skin in the game, if you have to pay for uh, your content to get out, if your content is uh, pollutative, you uh, pollutative is a made up word, but like you, you might have to pay more. Uh, and and so I, I think maybe there are some ideas around that, but there are definitely changes that should be made. I, I saw a funny post on Twitter the other day, but it's actually kind of true where it was like, uh, I know a way that Twitter can finally uh, increase their uh, revenue and, and share price. And it was like, uh, you know, it was a pop up. It was like, it looks like you're trying to compare someone to Hitler. That's totally fine on Twitter. It'll just be $100. <laughs> and so yeah, they make a lot of money that way. But um, look, um, I think that I, I, I think that he is very good with social science. I think I would like to see Jonathan Haidt um, look into some of the economics of information and um, the, uh, the 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 kind of the the economics and structure of um, blockchain and distributed networks um, in order to make these recommendations for the next time. That's, that's what I would like to see because I feel like the idea of, oh, we're just going to, we're just going to pass these regulations and it's going to be, yeah, based on uh, science and we're going to like, you know, 
we're going to regulate this basically the way we've regulated all our other institutions that aren't working. I just don't see that working. So, and, and uh, the third example now is he wants to prepare the next generation to do better. I totally agree with that. Uh, there's a hypothesis uh, that has some evidence that he posts that uh, or posits that depression and self-harm among teens are on the rise and they increased dramatically after social media came out and teens started to use them in 2011, 2012, or, or somewhere around there. Uh, and there is some evidence for that. I wonder if there's also been an acceleration with COVID where uh, children have been told, you know, don't go near other people or other children and never see a face. Um, that is that likely to have a psychological impact? I mean, almost definitely. I can't believe that, uh, you know, well... I, uh, our leaders are crazy that they won't even talk about this, but I'm sure there's an acceleration with that during COVID. And he says that this rise in social media has also coincided with things like Twitter warnings and blocking university, uh, Twitter warnings, trigger warnings, and blocking university speakers. That stuff happens all the time. It happened before this, but um, it's always happened. You know, blocking university speakers has been, it was the thing when I was at Yale and in um, 2002, I saw it happen once. The guy got to speak, but you know, the the uh, uh, the place was people tried to interrupt. Um, it didn't work as well back then, though. They they weren't quite able to totally disrupt the um, the meeting, but they were trying to. So it was like kind of this force that it was kind of this like uh, this uh, this malevolent force that was sort of there in the background a little bit, and then maybe uh, the new social media world made it explode into the forefront, and uh, you know some of the baser instincts took over. Um, and that's why it's been worse in the 2010s. Uh, so, okay, uh, that's bad. I, I think he says, so So that's not only bad, so that, that's maybe what has to do with like what all this stuff is doing to teens and children. And so the things I agree with, he wants more free play, less helicopter parenting. He wants um, to relax laws on making parents liable if like their kids are allowed to play in the park, like it's the 1980s or something. Uh, and... Uh, it's, um, it's, yeah, that's all very important. Um, but I don't know. I don't think changing a few laws is necessarily going to, going to change this, but, uh, I guess the, the only thing that you could do is if you're a parent out there, you can, you can, you know, raise your kids without as much, uh, social media or to teach them how to have a healthy relationship with social media. Even if we don't, it's kind of like you have a parent who smokes, who tells you don't, don't get into smoking. It's not good, but you know, we've got to try. Um, but I think there is, I think that a lot of the kids growing up in schools now are witnessing what's happening. And they've got to look at this and they've got to say something is wrong. This is, a, this is not a good way to live, uh, being um, crazed and hysterical from one thing to another. Uh, you know, every, every couple of weeks, it's something else we have to be crazed and, hyster and hysterical on. I don't think, honestly, I don't think that'll go on forever. I don't think that, um, I think technology changes and I think society changes with technology. And I think that, um, I think eventually we'll get to the next phase. So, uh, before we get into more solutions, I want to talk about some relevant tweets that I found from, um, uh, Mark Andreessen at P. Marka on Twitter, obviously, you know, huge investor in the tech industry. You know, Andreessen Horowitz was one of the early investments in Foursquare, but that, that's just the one that affects me. They've invested in almost everything. It's probably on like tons and tons of boards and, you know, we invented one of the first browsers and all that. So he said recently on Twitter, I predict, predict essentially identical censorship to platforming policies across all lay layers of legacy internet stack client-side and server-side internet service providers, cloud platforms, CDNs, payment networks, client operating systems, browsers, email clients, with only rare exceptions. The pressure is intense. I should state clearly in another tweet, I don't expect the current censorship deplatforming trend to reverse. I expect it to intensify, again, with very few exceptions. The current trend is a tsunami with enormous force and pressure behind it, and it's working. Okay, so that's what he sees from his vantage point. And so it's, um, it is uh, a very uh, pessimistic vantage point. Of course, he's also investing in crypto, blockchain, bit, 
Bitcoin, what they're calling Web3 now. They always have to have a, a, new, a new term for it. And so maybe he's saying, hey, our legacy systems are going to have a problem, but we can build new systems that don't have these problems. And so that's up to the people of the future. So maybe there's kind of a positive spin in there. I feel like, uh, you know, as an investor, you can't always uh, be preaching doom, doom, doom. You have to believe in something. But I feel like, you know, and, and I feel like that's what he's doing here. I think he's saying the current system that <laughs> I've invested in for many years, uh, as Andreessen Horowitz, is now um, uh, on its way to being crushed uh, by all this pressure, and we have to create something new. Okay. Um, so I think I, I want to turn back to kind of the fourth turning theory uh, that, um, uh, that we talked about in episode, uh, episode 172 um, and 173 on this podcast. Um, it's, uh, it's, because I, I, I think that that offers kind of an alternative way to look at some of this than we've heard from uh, Jonathan Haidt and Mark Andreessen. Because their thesis is kind of like the technology drives the time, drives the times. So if things are crazy, if things are stupid, if everyone's a moron around you, that's because of the technology that's available at the time. That's, you know, because of present day uh, social media. But um, in the uh, fourth turning books uh, on, on generations and generational change and, uh, and societal change that way, they kind of have a, um, a, a, a dual feedback system. So the, the times that we live in also drive the technology. Uh, so the technology will accommodate different moods. So it's not just that our tech is making us making the last 10 years the stupidest 10 years in America, it could also be that because we're living through the stupidest 10 years in America, our technology has adopted to accommodate us in being that stupid. Let's put it that way. And so, uh, and, and it's not, it's, it's not pushing, it's not just push, it's push and pull in other words. And that sounds kind of reasonable. Um, and so I, I'm kind of reminded about how, uh, you know, uh, uh, who, who, who is it? Brandon Quidham, who I interviewed in, oh, I got to find all these episodes. Uh, episode 208 said Bitcoin is fourth turning money. Maybe it's first turning money. Maybe it's the next, the next phase where we're going to get out of this. Um, and not just Bitcoin, but I, you know, Bitcoin's always the, uh, the best example. It's the most ready one that, that people are looking at. But I think there are a whole host of changes that are going to happen um, that can, change us from the, the times we're in to the next phase. Now, it, uh, I started off this podcast by reading some quotes from books in 2009. And that just goes to show how differently we look at technology now than we did in 2009. And if it changed that much in 10 years, um, I believe it can change just as much in the next 10 years. And I don't think it's going to go all in one direction. Because if you took the direction things were going in, up to 2010 and projected it, you wouldn't get to where we are today. Uh, you would have a, a, a vastly different world. But we got to where we are today because things change direction and things will change direction again. And so I think that uh, I think that there is there could be an element of generational change in here uh, that will be at play. And I I have to believe that Jonathan Haidt uh, would agree with me on this because one of his suggestions is to prepare the next generation. Um, but you know, the next generation doesn't have to be 40 years in the future. It could be 10 years in the future, so that's all of us. It's kind of the next iteration of ourselves. It's also the teen, teens, but it's also um, those of us who are still alive can, can improve ourselves and also can improve our technology habits. Um, and um, also as engineers, we can improve what we're building. And I think over time, if we do that little by little, we will converge into a new consensus. I I think that's how it works. I think that's happening. So how do you look at this? Who's right? Do you think that technology purely drives the times that we live in? Or do you think there's a little push and pull? Do you think that the, 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 the mood of the country or the mood of the world uh, also drives the technology? And maybe once we change our attitude, maybe we'll build different technology to accommodate that attitude. What do you think? Um, obviously, you know, 
time will tell. But uh, please uh, send me an email, localmaxradio at gmail.com, or please subscribe to our locals if you get value out of this, maximum.locals.com. Would love to hear your thoughts on this fascinating topic today um, from Jonathan Hates. I really enjoyed that article. And it's really long, so you got to listen to me. Um, If you want to get the article from its particular point of view, I would definitely encourage you to go read the article. Um, Otherwise, hop on our locals and uh, and ask questions about it. Um, Okay, so next week, I if Aaron does come in today, and I've made some upgrades to the uh, the studio, so hopefully uh, hopefully we'll check that out. Uh, They're not huge upgrades, they're small upgrades, but hopefully we'll talk about Elon Musk's bid to take over Twitter. Um, That's um, obviously mentioned it today, but I think that. that's going to give us an opportunity to learn a little bit more about corporate governance. Um, it's always, you know, we talk so much about how the government is governed, because <laughs> the, the, government is really governance of the state, right? So, but the state, there's a lot of things that are outside the state, which are, you know, corporations. How, how are those governed? And so we're going to learn a lot about that um, um, with regards to Twitter and why it works the way it does. Um, and also just, you know, is this possible? Could this make, could change be that easy just to have some billionaire come in and, and change everything? Maybe it could. I don't know. Well, we'll we're going to have to hash that out. Maybe I'm going to follow up on uh, bias correcting machine learning, uh, which obviously I have that paper out on how to correct bias in machine learning. So check out my new blog post on that. Um, and um, also, in my uh, in my uh, day job right now, which is currently building up the open source database slash programming language of newmap.ai, I've been learning a lot about category theory and higher level mathematics. I've talked about it before with Ty Dene Bradley, um, but maybe I'll do some more episodes on that and, and, sh- and share what I've learned and kind of do what I've done with machine learning, which is to say, okay, how is this relevant to... Um, you know, someone who is not in the field, because category theory is such high level abstract math that it might seem like, you know, this will never be interesting to me, this will never be relevant to me. But no, I'll try to make it something that's a, that's a little more relevant. And in doing so, I think it will be a fascinating discussion. So, all right, that's it for today. Episode 222. Love those numbers. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.